Bella Swan's got a new boyfriend, and he sucks. You are listening to the Nibbler Podcast, the Twilight Book Club for April Fools. A few small shudders trembled through me. My mind still swirled dizzily, full of images I couldn't understand, and some I fought to repress. Nothing seemed clear at first, but as I fell gradually closer to unconsciousness, a few certainties became evident. About three things I was absolutely positive. First, Edward was a vampire. Second, there was a part of him, and I didn't know how potent that part might be, that thirsted for my blood. And third, I was unconditionally and irrevocably in love with him. I'm Heather Price Wright. And I'm Alex Dallenberg. And welcome to the first edition of The Nibbler. This month, honestly, this two months, we (laughs) read book one of the Twilight Saga, which is just called Twilight. In this podcast, you will hear plenty of cursing. And you will hear spoilers for the first Twilight book. Alex doesn't actually know what happens in the most of the series. So you do. I I do. Because in fact, I have read all of these books, which maybe is a little embarrassing. But you know what? I'm going to own it. You will also this week hear some adult themes. This week's adult themes are abstinence, foster care, dating older men, Bloodlust, Regular Lust, Slow Speed Collisions, Talking About the Weather, Dark Alleys, Pathological Clumsiness, Vegetarianism, Extraneous Details, The Medieval Church, Spanish Influenza, Flowers in the Attic, Gothic Kids, Native American Treaties, Lingering Gazes, Insomnia, Small Town Cops, Soothsaying, Pick Up Baseball, and Sharing Your Sparkle. That's a lot of adult themes. Oh, yeah. This is a very adult book. It is. A very Um, young adult book. It is the quintessential quivering lips and lingering gazes YA (laughs) fantasy (laughs) novel. So, Alex, this is going to be interesting. What happened this month? All right. As Twilight by Stephanie Meyer opens, we meet Bella Swan, who is moving from Paradise Valley, Arizona, to Forks, Washington on the Olympic Peninsula to live with her dad. On her first day of school, she sees this family sitting across the lunchroom, the Cullens, who are, quote, devastatingly inhumanly beautiful. So... Some of the kids at school tell her that the Cullens sort of keep to themselves. Uh, They're the foster kids of Dr. Carlisle Cullen, who is a physician at the local hospital. In biology class, Bella has to sit next to Edward, who's the youngest of the Cullens. Right? He's the youngest? I think so. Yeah. And Edward's being, like, really weird. It seems like he totally hates her. He's looking at her like she smells, like, terrible. So that, like, weirds her out. So Edward disappears for a while, which perplexes Bella. But then when he gets back, one, his eye color has changed. Before, they were, like, black. And now they're, like, a deep golden, like, amber color, which Bella notices. And he seems to be warming up to her. He introduces himself. And they look at onion cells together in biology through a microscope. And Bella thinks Edward's really hot. The next day at school, a kid named Tyler almost hits Bella with his van by slipping on the ice. 
But Edward saves her despite apparently being all the way across the parking lot. He, like, suddenly materializes by her side and stops this dark blue van from, it's a dark blue van, from, like, basically running Bella over. He stops it with his bare hands. So, so Bella's, like, concussed. She has to go to the hospital. Edward goes, too, even though he appears to be, like, uninjured. Bella then confronts him privately a- after being released from the hospital and asks, like, how he did that. Yeah, and Edward basically gaslights her. He's like, you think I lifted a ban off you, Edward says? Nobody will believe you, you know? What? Tyler, who hit Bella with his van, then sort of becomes, like, obsessed with her and wants to, like, take her to prom as a way to, like, say, sorry, I hit you with my van. Please be my girlfriend now. That plotline never goes anywhere. Also, Tyler replaces his van with a Nissan Sentra. Stephanie Meyer describes the make, model, and color of literally every car. Of every car. car Bella sees. I guess Bella does. So either Stephanie Meyer is really into like car brands or Bella is. Mike Newton drives a Suburban. Mike Newton is like her main suitor. He's like the main <laughs> kind of like normal, sweet, cool guy that's like super obsessed with her. Everyone wants to go to the dance with Bella. She's horrified because here's another thing you have to know about Bella. She's incredibly clumsy and she's afraid that she won't be able to go to a dance without like literally breaking her neck. Bella tells everyone she's going to Seattle that weekend instead of the dance. Edward hears that Bella's going to Seattle that weekend and asks if he can drive her there. Edward says that he doesn't think that her old beater truck will make it. Also, he's really worried about her carbon footprint. Bella wants to know why Edward's being so friendly all of a sudden. He says, I said it would be better if we weren't friends. Not that I didn't want to be, but I'm tired of trying to stay away from you, Bella. Edward mysteriously cuts class again, this time on blood typing day. Everyone, they're taking each other's blood types in biology. Bella passes out at the sight of blood. Mike Newton escorts her to the nurse's office, but she faints again. Edward materializes out of nowhere, scoops her up, and takes her home. This guy, Mike Newton, who just loves organizing shit, like he tries to organize a snowball fight earlier in the book, but it gets like ruined by rain. Anyway, Mike Newton is like an event planner, like cruise director dude, and he has arranged a beach trip to La Push, which is on the Quileute Reservation. Bella asks Edward if he can go, but he can't. He says he can't after he hears that they're going to uh, La Push, but he tells Bella to be careful. Edward is afraid that Bella will fall into the ocean and drown. During this beach trip, the students from Forks High School meet some of the locals from the reservation who come down to hang out, including but 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 motherfucking Jacob Black, who is the son of Charlie's best friend, Billy Black, who sold Bella's truck to Charlie. So are we all straight on the relationships there? So, one of Jacob's friends mentions that the Cullens never come to La Push. Uh, Bella takes Jacob aside and tries to get him to tell her more about the Cullens. She bats her eyelashes at him. Jacob looks, quote, allured, unquote. And he tells her about the Quileute legends. So, the Quileute people apparently descended from... Wolves and their natural enemies are the cold ones, which most white people would refer to as vampires. And the Cullens, he says, the like tribe's elders believe that they're like vampires and they made a treaty with them like a hundred years ago with the same Cullens who keep like returning to town. 
because the Cullens have claimed to be different and that they don't feed on humans. They they eat animals. Right. So they, they have this uneasy truce. The Cullens never come to the push. Uh, so basically, it's the only treaty that white people have ever kept with the Native Americans. Bella, intrigued, goes home and she goes to her favorite search engine to look up vampires. So after a cursory internet search, she decides that, yep, the Cullens are vampires. <laughs> uh, she walks into the forest to mull it over and decides that it doesn't really matter to her because Edward is a total babe. The next day it's sunny. There's no Edward. So that adds to Bella's suspicion. Uh, even though Bella's not going to the dance, she goes dress shopping with two of her girlfriends in Port Angeles. She goes off to a bookstore by herself while they're looking at dresses and is stalked in an alley by some creepy guys who then kind of surround her and try to attack her. They're closing in when but 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 a motherfucking silver Volvo comes out of nowhere. Edward's inside. He pulls her in the Volvo and uh, they they take off. So how did Edward know that Bella was in Port Angeles and she was in trouble? Uh, we're about to find out. They go to an Italian restaurant together in Port Angeles. Edward orders nothing. Bella orders mushroom ravioli. Edward tells Bella that he knew where she was because he can read minds, but not her mind. Bella's like, oh, is that all? I thought you were a vampire. After barely any prodding, Edward confirms that, yeah, I'm a vampire, but I'm not that kind of vampire. My family are vegetarians, which is their little joke for the fact that they only eat animals, not humans. So Edward drives Bella home extremely fast. Vampires like to speed, it turns out. <laughs> they go like 120 miles per hour. Bella goes to bed, her mind reeling from this crazy new information, and she decides that she's sure about three things. Edward's a vampire, he probably wants to drink her blood on some level, and she is unconditionally and irrevocably in love with him. So that escalated. Yeah, like, really fast. So Bella and Edward spend the next couple of days getting to know each other. He asks a lot of questions about, like, her favorite color and stuff like that. You know, there's a lot of small talk for, like, uh, like 2,000 pages, it feels like. <laughs> uh <laughs> Uh, on the day that Bella's supposed to go to Seattle, she goes on a hike with Edward instead. Edward insists on Bella telling Charlie that they'll be together to give Edward some incentive not to murder her. But Bella tells him that it will be better if no one knows where she is or who she is with. Bella makes great choices <laughs> throughout this novel. So they go on a hike. They go to a pretty sweet meadow. We learn that Edward and all other vampires motherfucking sparkle in the sunlights. So Edward looks like a human Christmas tree and shows off his powers to demonstrate how dangerous he is and why, like, it's a really bad idea that they're dating. Uh, so they're like sparkle-crossed lovers or whatever. <laughs> we also learned that Edward wanted to eat Bella on her first day in class, and not just because she was wearing strawberry-scented shampoo, uh, which is another detail that I didn't drop in earlier. It's like... Edward just knows that she'd be his favorite flavor. Uh, anyway, they kiss at one point. Edward sort of freaks out and says he's, like, trying to, like, keep control of his, like, 
vampiric urges. Uh, we learn Edward's biography. He's from Chicago. He died, or he became a vampire, rather. He, like, undied in 1918 when he was suffering from the Spanish flu. That's when uh, his vampire father, uh, Carlisle Cullen, Dr. Cullen, who was working in the hospitals in Chicago, transformed him while he was on his deathbed after both of Edward's biological parents had died. Edward stays the night at Bella's house. We learn that he's been watching her in her sleep every night, which uh, doesn't freak Bella out at all. Uh, Also, vampires never sleep. Bella wakes up. Edward is still there. Bella tells Edward that he loves her. Edward says, you are my life now. So... Also, they've been dating, like, four days at this point. (laughs) I think maybe less than that, actually. So, in keeping with the incredibly, like, rapid-fire trajectory this relationship is on, Bella goes to Edward's house to meet his family. We learn that all these other vampires also have superpowers. Uh, Edward's sister, Alice, can see the future. Jasper, who's one of the vampires, has, like, crazy, like, empathy and can kind of, like, get people to do what he wants. Uh, He can, like, calm a room down. He's, like, super charismatic. Uh, Esme, who's Edward's mother, has, like, the power of, like, love or some bullshit. Uh, (laughs) Some of their powers are manifestly cooler than others. Uh, and we learned that Carlyle was born in the 1640s in London. He was the son of an Anglican minister who fucking hated vampires. So... On one of these vampire hunts, Carlyle got turned into one himself, horrified by what he had become. He refused to hunt humans and, like, taught himself restraints and, like, wandered Europe. He, like, hung out in Italy for a while with some, like, super classy vampires. But eventually, super lonely, he came to America. He got his, like, he got his, like, MD or something. I don't know. Like, learning how to bleed people with leeches, probably, in, like... The 19th century. Do they still do the leech thing in the 19th century? I don't know. I'm not up on my medical history. Carlisle is. <laughs> and that's where he changed uh, Edward, because he wanted to start his own family. Uh, as a young man, Edward rebelled, though, against not drinking blood. Not a young man, as a young vampire. Oh, as a young vampire, Edward rebelled at not drinking blood, because, you know, like, you got the thirst, so... He, like, became this crazy vampire vigilante, like, only hunting evil people, because I guess he was trying to take a bite out of crime. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I wasn't expecting that one. So, (laughs) Edward became McGruff the crime vampire for a little (laughs) while. Bella goes with the Cullens to play pickup baseball in the mountains. They can only play in a storm. I was sure that this was going to be because, like, lightning was involved somehow, because, like, they're all crazy superhumans, but it's only because they hit the ball so fucking loud that the thunder, like, covers up their playing. Uh, While they're playing, a roving coven of vampires shows up, of human-eating vampires. Their names are Laurent, James, and Victoria. There's, like, some uneasy conversation, but shit goes down when James, who's one of the vampires, the other vampires realizes that Bella's a human, he, like, crouches into, like, attack mode, but the Cullens manage to, like, diffuse the situation. But Edward is really freaked out because he reads James' mind and realizes that he's a tracker vampire who is going to pursue Bella to, like, the ends of the Earth. So they form a plan to get Bella out of town. Some of them go hunting for James. 
and Alice and Jasper drive Bella to Phoenix in, I think they're BMW, because it has, like, tinted fucking windows. They get a hotel near Sky Harbor International Airport in Phoenix. Alice tells Bella how new vampires are born. The venom from their fucking, like, vampire teeth, like, gets in their blood, and it, like, transforms you after an agonizing period of time. But most people don't get transformed, because most vampires, when they taste blood, go into, like fucking beast mode and like suck out all the blood because they can't help themselves uh alice gets a vision of a ballet studio where the evil vampire james is waiting for something bella recognizes it as the ballet studio near her mother's home it's at 56th street and cactus in scottsdale which is a place you can look up on google maps Bella leaves her mom a voicemail using the Cullens' shared cell phone. The Cullens are rich as fuck. They buy luxury cars, and they only have one fucking cell phone for the whole family. But (laughs) anyway, uh, Bella leaves her mom a voicemail telling her, don't go home. Just trust me. Also, Bella had to, like, tell her dad that she hated him in order to, like, get out of town to, like, have a cover story. Whatever. Uh, Later, Bella gets a call on the Cullens' shared family cell phone. It sounds like it's from her mom, who's all freaked out, but then evil vampire James cuts in. He tells her to go to her mother's house alone if she wants him to spare her mom. They all go to Sky Harbor Airport to pick up Edward, who's flying into town. Bella uses her intimate knowledge of the Phoenix Airport to, like, escape from these vampires and convinces a cab driver to take her to Scottsdale. He doesn't really want to, even though it really isn't that far from Sky Harbor International. And it's fucking Phoenix, bro. Everyone drives everywhere. Like, that's just long distance. You're not going to be picking up street fares. This is unimportant. But you're right. Alex and I just like, we were basically weirdly obsessed with how many details about Phoenix were in this book. Uh, yeah. Bella gets to her house. There's like a note giving her a phone number to call. She calls the number. It's James. He says, go to the ballet studio. Bella, uh, which is like around the fucking corner. Bella goes to the ballet studio. James is there. It turns out that this has all just been a ploy to get Edward to come after him because he wants, like, a crazy vampire challenge. And he's disappointed that it was, like, so easy to snare her in his trap. He's also going to videotape himself sucking her blood. So that's pretty fucked up. Uh, There's a scuffle. Bella gets thrown into a mirror. She passes out. She thinks she's dying, but she's dimly aware of the fact that Edward and the other Cullens show up. They, like, kick James' ass, rip him to pieces, and burn them up. Yeah, you can't just, like, put a stake into a vampire's heart in the Twilight Saga. You have to tear them into pieces and light them on fire. So that's pretty hard. In the melee, though, James has bitten Bella. So to prevent her from becoming a vampire, Edward has to summon all his self-control and suck the vampire venom out of her wound. So Edward basically gets to, like, vampire third base with Bella. Is it second base, third base? I don't know. know. It's a whole other set of bases. Yeah. Uh, Bella wakes up in the hospital. She asks Edward why he didn't just let her become a vampire. Edward is totally against the idea because he wants her to have like a normal human life. And he kind of, he has, he's got like vampire self-loathing. He's like being a vampire bites. Oh my God. (laughs) And that's the tooth. Anyway, but Bella guesses that Alice has seen a vision of her in the future as a vampire. And that's what Edward's like trying to forestall. So, some time passes, Edward tells Bella to get dressed up for an occasion, Bella's hoping that it will be Edward vampiring her, but it's just the fucking prom, which, but 
Edward is, like, pretty good at dancing, so she has a good time. Jacob Black shows up at the prom. His dad paid him to come to the dance to warn Bella not to date Edward. She's like, oh, okay, is that because he believes the crazy werewolf? Not werewolf. Is that because he believes the crazy vampire legends? Jacob's like, yeah, all right, well, I've told you, but he wants you to know we'll be watching, whatever that means. Bella returns to Edward. They go outside. She asks why he brought her to prom. Edward says he doesn't want her to miss out on anything in life, a human life. So they're at an impasse. Bella seems disappointed, but then he says, I'll stay with you forever. Isn't that enough? Bella says, yes, that is enough for now. Edward smooches Bella's neck with his icy cold vampire mouth and the curtain falls. And that's what happens in this book. Whew, that was a mouthful. Yeah, it's um, a deceptively action-packed book considering the fact that almost nothing happens for like 10 full chapters. Yeah, I made it sound way more eventful than it actually was. This book is a slow burn. Yeah, general impressions. Twilight is known as being pretty bad. And I think it's less just straight up bad than like, pretty singularly weird is twilight bad or they're just like haters in doing a little research for this podcast the original book got like pretty good reviews in the sort of like ya like review sphere i think okay the writing is sometimes like fucking painful it's strange it's like full of bizarre extraneous details Bella's inner monologue is excruciatingly dull. (laughs) And it's told, it's in first person, so it's from Bella's point of view. And Bella's point of view sucks. None of her decisions make any sense. She is, like, reckless to the point of, like, suicidal. All in pursuit of the love of this person who she has known for, like, a full eight weeks. And if that she yeah, the writing is weird, but the writing might be weird because Bella is fucking weird because sometimes like there are some I feel like people are going to think this is crazy, but like there are some lovely passages in this book. Yeah, like there is some more than passable writing. I would say it's mostly inconsistent would be my reaction to it. But yeah, there are just like the random details like. The constantly calling out the make and model of various vehicles Bella sees. It's like Stephanie Myers was in like a writing workshop and someone was like, enrich your sort of like world building with details. Yeah, and she was like, okay, it, details. That's what it Every feels like. Every car. <laughs> Nissan Sentra. Toyota Corolla. But I would say overall, both of us, and I had read these books before, but I read them in... I guess, late high school, early college. And so I didn't really remember, like I remembered the plot, but I didn't really remember the writing. This was genuinely better than I expected. Yeah, uh, I would say, okay, so the first third of the book, when there are no fucking vampires, is punishing. I was really wondering if I was going to be able to like, get through it. Yeah. You know, I I was like Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park, like tapping the monitor, being like, "Uh, eventually there will be uh, vampires in your vampire romance novel. Uh, But when 
shit starts getting supernatural. She finds her sea legs, basically, and it becomes, like, pretty compelling. It's the it's the realism that she has a hard time. Oh my god! Off, the just like you know? normal when they're, high like, school sitting in class in high school, like looking at onion cells for like, ten pages. You sit in multiple classes with Bella, like in real time, <laughs> and sort of like the drives. Like she's just driving back and forth to school, but like it takes as long to read those passages as it would to physically drive from her house to Forks High School. <laughs> like there are just these bonkers long meandering nothing pages. Yeah, there's one scene where she's sitting on her lawn and like, she's like reading Romeo and Juliet or something. No, it's uh she's reading Jane Austen, but oh. everyone all these characters are like named Edward or like na- have names that like sound like Edward. So she's like, and then nothing. Hot and bothered she by falls it. asleep, and you expect her to fall asleep, and then something to like befall her. Yeah, she wakes up. <laughs> there's is what lot, happens. There's a lot of red herrings. Um, so also we're given to understand that Bella, we're given to understand based on like. There's all these details like, oh, I mean, she's like in English class and she gets the book list and she's like, Ugh, I've already read everything on this. Like, I wonder if I can recycle my old essays. So we're supposed to think that Bella is like really, really smart. Every single boy who like just crosses the pages of these books in any way is obsessed with Bella immediately. Like all of the human boys like, cannot fucking get enough of her. Right. Like, Tyler, Eric, Mike, all these, like, normal-ass Forks kids. It's like she's, like, fucking... This is a dated reference, but I don't know why this came to mind. But it's like she's fucking, like, Britney Spears, <laughs> who came to school. Well, she's, like, you know, it's a small town. Everybody knows everybody. Everyone's grown up together. She's, like, the kind of exotic... But I think usually Arizona girl. Usually in YA novels, it's the opposite. Usually, like the outsider is like shunned. Well, she's the what's the what's the fan fiction term for the character that can like do everything? I don't know. What do they call that? What well, she's like a bit of a Mary Sue, right? In that respect, I, I that's the that's the name for it, right? But the, like, like kind of character who's like I like just the perfect vehicle. But no, but she's not. No, no, no. A Mary Sue is like Rey in Star Wars where like she can inexplicably like do everything. She's like perfect at everything she tries. Bella is useless. Like she's not really a Mary Sue. She's just this weird like cipher for like I think the point that like other kind of like critics have made is like Bella is supposed to be a character that you can just like project your own personality and experiences on and basically like live this book through Bella's eyes kind of like as yourself right and it's sort of like the wish fulfillment right you can like hop into like Bella and be but like desired yes but which is appealing that has like like appeal. I, okay I get that that's true and I think that is the point of Bella I don't know that that is actually Stephanie Meyer's intent with Bella. Well, the portrayal of that, the having to like leave her so blank, like gives her this weird, really flat affect. She I was comes like, across as like clinically depressed. Yeah, I was like, is there something like, does Bella need help? Okay, here's an example. She sees snowfall for the first time. This to me is the most unrealistic thing in this fucking book. Full stop. When we walked out of class, the air was full of swirling bits of white, 
I could hear people shouting excitedly to each other. The wind bit at my cheeks, my nose. Wow, Mike said, it's snowing. I looked at the little cotton fluffs that were building up along the sidewalk and swirling erratically past my face. Ew, snow. There went my good day. He looked surprised. Don't you like snow? No, that means it's too cold for rain, obviously. Besides, I thought it was supposed to come down in flakes. You know, each one unique and all that. These just look like the ends of Q-tips. Haven't you ever seen snow fall before, he asked incredulously. Sure I have, I paused. On TV? Mike laughed, and then a big, squishy ball of dripping snow smacked into the back of his head. We both turned to see where it came from. I had my suspicions about Eric, who was walking away, his back toward us, in the wrong direction for his next class. Mike apparently had the same notion. He bent over and began scraping together a pile of the white mush. I'll see you at lunch, okay? I kept walking as I spoke. Once people start throwing wet stuff, I go inside. She's from Arizona. She's never seen snowfall. Snow falls, and she's like, ugh, snow, gross. As having grown up two in, people from Arizona. Having grown up in Phoenix, no one from Phoenix ever reacts that way to seeing snowfall for the first time. Like, it'll get cold, like, once every, like, four years, and, like, a few flakes will fall, and people lose their fucking minds. It's like Santa Claus himself came down from the North Pole and was like, Santa is real, everyone gets, like, presents forever, basically. It's, like, fucking magical. Yeah, people go apeshit for snow as <laughs> as as desert rats ourselves. So, I'm yeah, desert people love the fucking snow. So, like, she's not even at least, like, curious about it. She's never had this experience before. She's not curious about anything. No. The only thing that she ever has an emotional reaction to is Edward. And maybe that's why he's, I mean, that's clearly why he's so important to her, right? Right, but I think the reason nothing has ever, like, aroused her, like, interest. Yeah. Yeah, it reads reads like a story about an incredibly depressed... Maybe she is depressed. But I think, yeah, they're leaving her kind of, like, blank to be, like, a stand-in for the reader. Like, it achieves a really weird effect. A weird and off-putting effect. Instead of what I think is Stephanie Meyer's intended effect. And so one of the like big kind of like vampire plot points, not really like plot points, but like an important feature of Edward is he can read everyone's mind except for Bella's. (laughs) And like clearly he can't read Bella's mind because there is nothing in Bella's mind. Like her mind is utterly and completely blank except for flashes of like desperate obsession. Like... It's shitty. And the other thing that's shitty is like there's all these other characters that like are really interesting. So we can get sorry. We'll we'll get okay. to that. Maybe Edward should be truly freaked out that he can't read her mind. Yeah. He'd be like, whoa, what? It's totally weird that it makes him obsessed with her rather than being like something's fucking wrong with you. But yeah, our joke the whole time we were reading this was like, you can't read Bella's mind because Bella like barely has any thoughts. (laughs) Bella is also, like we said in the summary, so clumsy that you're worried that she has like a disorder of some sort. Yeah, like she needs an MRI done. She like can't walk like a couple of steps without like really falling. So you know you have a problem when you are like, 
planning your day around this, right? Like, she's constantly being confronted with experiences. Like, they're, when she's at the beach, a bunch of the kids want to go to the tide pools. And she's like, okay, I'll probably fall into the fucking tide pools. Or when she's being attacked, like, when she's being attacked in the alley by the, like, ruffians in Port Angeles, she's, like, cal- she's doing, like, mental calculations. Like, all right, I can't run, because if I run, I will immediately, like, break my leg. Uh... Right, like, under the Americans with Disabilities Act, like, you define a disability that deserves a reasonable, so, like, in the workplace, like, you get sort of, like, the right to reasonable accommodations if your disability, like, substantially impacts your ability to, like, perform at least one, like, necessary function of everyday life, which is absolutely true of Bella Swan. Like, Bella Swan would qualify under the Americans with Disabilities <laughs> Act as somebody that, like, needed, like, a walker or something at school. Like, it's like, we, t- I mean, this is like a trope of, like, the quote-unquote flaw of, like, female characters in YA as, like, it's supposed to be, like, an endearing, like, it's not an actual flaw. It's just like, oops, I fell over. But, like, something is wrong with Bella. Okay, no, not wrong with. That's actually really ableist. But, like... This is a more severe, like, life-altering condition than, like, being clumsy. Bella needs to visit a doctor and, like, figure this out. She needs to, like, get a brain scan. (laughs) It's disturbing. So let's talk a little bit about Stephanie Meyer's conception of vampires. Because it is, like, off-book in a lot of ways. She makes some pretty extra choices with vampires. Because... All right, they're not just vampires. They're also the X-Men, basically. They each have a special power. Yeah, it's... <laughs> well, at one point, Bella is, like, trying to guess what Edward is. And there's they have this conversation where she's like, I've considered radioactive spider bites and kryptonite. And he's like, that's all superhero stuff. What if I'm the villain? Which is, like, an annoying conversation to begin with. <laughs> but it's like, yeah, Bella's, like, on the right track. It... Because the vampires are just superheroes who eat, who drink blood. Yeah. I guess it's sort of freeing that she goes away from some of the, like, traditional, like, vampire tropes. Like, the whole stake in the heart, uh, garlic, or whatever. The crud. Like, that frees her to do some more interesting narrative things. But it gets to the point where, like, this doesn't really make sense as, like, a vampire novel. Their bloodlust is the only thing that sort of, like, connects them to any sort of, like, cultural history or understanding of vampires, like, at all. Like, for example, the sunlight thing. This, I kept thinking about What We Do in the Shadows, which is this awesome mockumentary about, like, a... Fan, like about all these like vampire roommates it's hysterical in, the, like new zealand the flight like of the concords yeah, yeah the flight of the concords guys did it highly but, recommend oh yeah it's great and so there's this like really disturbing but funny scene where like a vampire gets into sunlight and like roasts to death that's like kind of the cultural understanding of what happens to vampires in the sun edward just gets glittery this is one of the weirdest fantasy moments i've ever experienced what is the reason for that? It's so strange. And it doesn't seem to serve, because like a lot of it, and this I kind of understood-ish, like he 
does this whole thing where he like demonstrates all of his like predator abilities. That's one of the best moments in the book, I think. Yeah, and it's really interesting. So he's like inhumanly attractive. So he's like everything about me like lures you in. And then he's like super fast and super strong and he's like as if you would even like need to be lured because I could like kill you in an instant without you even needing to like actually come near me. That that part is that that part's really awesome. But then it's like, so what are the sparkles? But also I glitter. (laughs) Like what that just is like the definition of extra. (laughs) And I just like if if I was to ask Stephanie Meyer any single question, I would just be like Tell me about the glittering. Like, I need to understand why you made that choice because I cannot fathom the reason for it. So there needs to be something that sets them apart from humans that keeps them from totally blending in, right? Yeah, I guess so. And if they're going to be awake in the day for the purposes of, like, sending these kids to high school, then there there needs to be, like, something that, like, some kind of limitation. Because otherwise it seems like these vampires can literally do anything. Yeah, except go out in the sun because they sparkle. It doesn't make any sense. It's so, <laughs> so weird. Also, I guess they can't make an excuse for that. They can't be like, yeah, I like we took a tour of like a glitter factory that like went really wrong. And, yeah. You know, can't just can't get it out. I mean, honestly, that's an experience we've all had with glitter. Yeah. Like, you know, that's I don't know. That's semi-plausible. Ever got, yo, you have gotten glitter like in your beard. I yeah. remember this happening. <laughs> and you couldn't get it out for like months. Yeah. So like this is plausible. Um, so at first I found her choices with the vampires to be like pretty extreme and, and weird and sort of like divorced from my understanding of vampires. But as the book went on, I sort of came to appreciate it because they really, and this is something I think she does a really good job with. They really are like alien. Yeah, I agree with that. It's strange. It's not off-putting to Bella, but like she does find it eerie and ethereal but also intriguing the fact that they never sleep their kind of otherworldly grace the like way they can just kind of show up without being seen to appear as if from nowhere and they're like speed and stuff i I don't yeah they're they're alien this i came to find really appealing and he's like freezing cold Mm -hmm. like he has like he's like dead to the touch in a way that that makes it really hard for me to believe that she would want to like embrace him like every time she describes like planning a smooch on his like cold statue like sort of hard icy lips I'm just like that sounds genuinely terrible different strokes for different folks man so we've all got uh our our tastes also, they smell really good. Their breath smells good. Their breath good, smells which good. Which for some reason, both of us, we both found that so creepy and disgusting. <laughs> yeah, she catches a whiff of her, his breath. And, and she like, like swoons. Even when someone's breath doesn't smell bad, like even when you're minty fresh, you don't want someone breathing on you, no, right? Like awful. does anyone's breath smell? Maybe that's just a human thing. Humans have bad breath. Vampire breath smells like... Like sweet breeze. Yeah, uh, so that's weird. Still fucking weird. I do they fart? Do vampires fart? No, they like don't do, have any like hu- cause does it they smell they like roses. They don't have like a digestive system. Right. I know you're asking that as a joke, but the answer is still no. Vampires don't fart. So speaking of, it would be musical if they did. Oh my god, that's true. Though. <laughs> speaking Just farting, Claire de Lune. Okay, this has stopped being funny. Okay. <laughs> um. Speaking of Bella's, like, weird insistence on, like, making out with, like, Statue Man, 
one of the like most discussed aspects of this book is their relationship and like Edward's behavior and a lot of people have pointed out that it's like kind of emotionally abusive like he's really controlling he's like really obsessed with her safety like he seems more interested in like keeping her quote-unquote safe or like protecting her than he does in like actually spending time with her like he seems more interested in her sort of like general safety from disaster than just like her which makes sense because she sucks well like possessing her basically yeah he like wants to be the thing that stands between her and like mayhem at all times even though he's the factor that like constantly brings mayhem into her life so i don't know that's sort of an interesting conflict yeah that's true yeah that is narratively interesting i think how do you feel about their relationship all right so i kind of like heard some of these things through osmosis having like never really been exposed to twilight except like in sort of my cultural peripheral vision so i was like actually expecting edward i had like pretty low expectations for edward so i didn't find him to be as bad as maybe he could have been he does gaslight her hard in the beginning it's sort of like toying with her in a way i find like really cruel but it's also it's sort of interesting you know, when he's like, oh, no one will believe you, or like, oh, that's just crazy. Like, there's, I'm just your average gold-eyed handsome dude who never eats. Uh, like, I couldn't possibly be anything other than a Forks High School student. Uh, but also, you know, it's because Edward's, like, conflicted, right? He, like, wants to tell her, but he feels like he can't. And I don't know, some of their, at first they're kind of, like, dancing around the main point conversations got on my nerves, but I thought that was like a pretty good stand-in for like teenage dating in a weird way when you're like two people trying to like feel each other out, but they're both like nervous to say what it is they actually want because like those are intense, sometimes like dangerous feelings. You know, I I found that to be like kind of a good stand-in, just like teen love, but taken to the most intense level. Yeah. Uh, does that make sense? I do agree with that. Or I, yes, I do understand what you're saying. I think like there's just some, like he, there's some aspects of this that are so upsetting though that it makes it sort of hard to be on Team Edward. Yes. Like he watches her sleep. Without her permission. He does a lot of things without her consent. Yeah, he invades her privacy hardcore because he can't read her mind, but he is reading everyone's mind who interacts with her so he's basically like spying on her which that is fucked up yeah he like listens to all her conversations through the minds of the people that she's having conversations with he like stalks her like he follows her to port angeles and he sort of saves her so it's like forgivable but it's it's not (laughs) actually forgivable it's a really weird move that moment is like when your stalker saves you from your other stalkers. Well, the other thing is, like, Edward has no real care for other human life. Like, in that moment, like, Bella almost gets, like, gang raped. Yeah. Like, it's a really, really upsetting scene. And he doesn't, like, call the police or think about, like, oh, probably there shouldn't be just, like, roving bands of, like, would-be rapists. fucking gang rapists? Of, like, would-be rapists. Like, Wandering, like, sp- this small town. So this like singular obsession he develops for like Bella and he has this whole thing about like where he's always talking about how like the minds of most people are like really chattery and boring and like she's like different and like special and it's like you don't actually know that. (laughs) Like 
you're intrigued by her because you can't read her mind but you don't know that her mind is like beautiful and like pure and like only thinking like incredibly interesting things like she's mostly just chattering like the rest of us and so it's like she's mostly thinking about car you makes and, models. and car makes yeah <laughs> so i do like a lot of times i actually find it really misogynistic because he's right. like really cruel about like she has this friend jessica Who's just like normal. And nice. She's really nice to Bella. She like befriends her right away. She cares about what's going on in Bella's life. Like she's always asking about like what's going on with Bella. The guy that Jessica is into, Mike, is really into Bella. And like Jessica's not a bitch about it. Like it sort of bugs her, but she's like fine. Yeah, Jessica reaches out to Bella right away in a small town. Actually, everyone is super fucking nice to Bella. Yeah, and Edward is just like, ugh, like normies. And it's just like, (laughs) you actually live in a shockingly kind-spirited community overall. (laughs) Like, I don't know. So that bugs me. I do relate to, it is actually a pretty good proxy for like, the intensity of sort of being in love in the fir- for the first time. Mm-hmm. Like I definitely remember having feelings like the ones Bella has for Edward, like a little bit less insane. Like I don't think I would have wanted to be turned into a vampire for like my like high school loves love. I don't know. I guess it does make sense. The other thing that's really interesting about the love story in this book is so Stephanie Meyer is um Mormon she's LDS and the vampire sort of temptation narrative is like a pretty direct one-to-one analog for like teen sex abstinence yeah this book is very much about abstinence he moved his icy palm to rest it against my cheek if I was too hasty if for one second I wasn't paying enough attention I could reach out meaning to touch your face and crush your skull by mistake. You don't realize how incredibly breakable you are. I can never, never afford to lose any kind of control when I'm with you. He waited for me to respond, growing anxious when I didn't. Are you scared? he asked. I waited for a minute to answer, so the words would be true. No, I'm fine. He seemed to deliberate for a moment. I'm curious now, though, he said, his voice light again. Have you ever... He trailed off suggestively. Of course not, I flushed. I told you I've never felt like this about anyone before, not even close. I know. It's just that I know other people's thoughts. I know love and lust don't always keep the same company. They do for me. Now, anyway, that they exist for me at all, I sighed. That's nice. We have that one thing in common, at least. He sounded satisfied. Your human instincts, I began. He waited. Well, do you find me attractive in that way at all? He laughed and lightly rumpled my nearly dry hair. I may not be a human, but I am a man, he assured me. And like how dangerous it is to sort of like flirt with the possibility of sexuality but at the same time like it's like totally worth it to like abstain and Edward's sort of like mastering of his temptation of his like sort of evil temptation is just like it's like really obvious 
which kind of like ruins the vampire effect for me because she so clearly has like an agenda. I don't know. Hmm. It doesn't ruin it, but it does annoy me. Like it's very moralizing. So I was expecting... I don't actually know if it is. Having that context, I found it to be pretty, at the same time, like, pretty acknowledging of the fact that, like, desire exists. Right, but the whole thing is, like, you're only a good person if you, like, totally master that desire. Hmm. Like, Edward is this stand-in for, like, someone who's, like, moral enough to totally control and, like, completely tamp down their desire to do something, like, sinful. Right, and there are religious overtones to the Cullen family, who are this clan of ethical vampires living in a culture of, like, decadence and depravity. They've, like, chosen this other way. Yeah. I mean, Carlisle Cullen is, like, literally from a religious background. Right. And a lot of his abstinence seems sort of like forged in the fires of those early experiences later on I don't actually know that they have this conversation in this book but Edward is really worried that vampires don't have souls so he doesn't want to change Bella because he's worried that he's like taking away her soul and like her ability to like ascend to heaven essentially Mm -hmm. so Edward is kind of religious you're right it's not it's not like grossly moralizing but it is i i find this sort of like relating sex to like murder a little bit (laughs) off-putting yeah like what edward desperately wants is to kill bella and there's sort of like a lot of overtones of like maintaining her virtue and like purity and he sees her as pure because he like can't read her mind or whatever and like she's not like sullied by like normal human concerns and all this bullshit. Right, so right. It does bug me kind of. I don't know. But she's actually like there are some genuinely like kind of hot and heavy moments. Yeah, like, yeah. I don't I yeah, I didn't find it to be I don't know. I, to me that's like it's sort of a feature, not a bug in a weird way. Yeah. Because it makes the like heaving bosoms and stuff like that all the like all the more, uh, I don't know, makes it all the more forbidden, right? Yeah, yeah, which, I mean, constraints make for, like, better sort of storytelling. So that's, I get that. So let's talk about, there's all these side characters that are just vastly more interesting than (laughs) Bella Swan. And Edward. And more interesting than Edward. So who are your favorite side characters? Uh, Definitely, like, all the Cullens seem like they would have been like more interesting to write a book about in a way uh but especially carlisle cullen who was like born in the 1640s and has been like a doctor for hundreds of years i would watch carlisle cullen md the television show where he's just working as a doctor in different historical eras and like grappling with his like bloodlust and Probably, like, solving mysteries and helping humans. Uh, you know, learning about, like, leeches and shit. And yeah. then antibiotics. <laughs> Carlisle is fascinating. Carlisle is also, like, the moral center of these books mm-hmm. in really important ways. And I don't think we spend enough time actually, like, examining his choices. Because Carlisle is sort of the, like, vampire patriarch of this kind of cobbled together 
vampire family. And he is the one that has sort of convinced everyone to live this vegetarian lifestyle. But this is what's morally complicated about Carlisle. He also sort of non-consensually, again, like consent is a big, big theme in this book, like consent and non-consent. So he has transformed all these people into vampires. Like he goes and finds humans on the brink of death and sort of unilaterally decides to like give them this eternal sort of like half life and they're not all happy about it no a lot of them are pretty mad about it not a lot of them edward has very complicated feelings about being a vampire he feels like he's a monster for all eternity when one of the books we learn rosalie's story rosalie is the vampire that's least welcoming to bella and we sort of learn why later on. Um, but suffice it to say that Rosalie is like actively furious. Right. And still loves Carlisle, which is confusing to me because yeah. he's made... It is weird because, yeah, Edward's so conflicted about being a vampire, but he has like so much respect for Carlisle. Yeah, and it's just like Carlisle made a very ethically murky choice because he was lonely. Like he wanted to create a family, but he created a family of like people who he has potentially like damned for eternity like they're undead monsters and like his wife too he created as yeah which i don't know how that worked he was like hey welcome to vampirehood uh we're married now by the way well we also learned that esme so all of their deaths are like pretty disturbing esme leaped off a cliff to kill herself after she had a miscarriage so, like, there's, I mean, talk about adult themes. <laughs> like, there's some seriously fucked up stories in these books. So, yeah, he, we find out, saves Rosalie at the brink of death after she has been violently assaulted by her, like, boyfriend yeah. and his friends. They've, like, sexually assaulted her to the point that she's, like, bleeding out, like, in the street. It's, like, really dire. Yeah. <laughs> All of it. And Carlisle, like, yeah, he just makes this decision that, like, oh, here's this dying person. Like, what if I turn them into, like, a succubus? Anyway. That is, yeah, that, like, that's why he's so interesting. I want to read a book about Carlisle's life and experiences. Totally And agreed. the fact that he's, like, had to, like, keep up with, like, medical advances is crazy to me. Yeah. He's like, man, I remember when we just gave people, like arsenic yeah cocaine to cure headaches or whatever <laughs> it's like we do things the old-fashioned way alice also is awesome uh one of the other vampires uh she's so yeah, her ability to see the future is used really well in this book uh especially when she's like drawing the pictures of the ballet studio and uh you know her connection with bella's like touching and uh, I, I just like how sort of ethereal and strange she is. I like, there's a, a really interesting feature of Alice's ability is that she can't see the future until someone has made a decision. Yeah. So like the future is like changeable. And so she has all these moments where like people deliberately sort of like evade her powers by like sort of not deciding what they're going to do until the last moment. So, like, James does that. Mm -hmm. He manages to, like, 
kind of get past her ability by like making these really snap judgments so that she can't see what's happening until it's like happened. Um, so I think that's a really interesting take. It's, it's a good plot on device. seeing the future because mm-hmm. she's not like omniscient. Right. It's like a really subjective ability. So I already talked about Jessica, who's like my favorite side character. I also love Charlie, Bella's dad. He's really kind-spirited. He's just sort of soft-spoken. I kind of want to watch, you want to watch Dr. Cullen, MD. I would watch a Charlie cop show. (laughs) He's just this like small town police officer eating pie at the local diner and like doing his thing. He treats Bella with a lot of tenderness considering how sort of prickly and awful she tends to be to him. Like, they actually have... I mean, she does make him dinner every night. Yeah, they have a sort of mutual... She's prickly. She's not awful to him, but she's, like, hard to get to know. But they do have a mutual tenderness that really appeals to me. Like, there's this really sweet scene early on where he, like, puts chains on her tires. Like, he puts snow tires on to, like, keep her safe. And she has this, like, welling of emotion because she's like, oh, he, like, cares about my safety. Which is like, yeah, he's your fucking dad. No, that's the best... That's actually the best... Bella moment that's like the most we see into her like kind of internal monologue because she has that reaction to it also because her mom is kind of like flighty and all over the place and in a lot of ways we learn that Bella was the one who cared for her mom which put a lot of like stress on her like Bella was the one that like made sure the bills got paid or like made sure she didn't like just take a dress to the dry cleaner and then leave it there forever. Or like tell her where her phone charger was mm-hmm. all the time. So yeah. that that is like the most we get into Bella's internal life, which is weird because this book is narrated by Bella. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, there's also this thing, and it really, this pisses me off throughout the series. Like Bella decides pretty early on that she wants to be a vampire, which 100% means abandoning everyone who's ever loved her. And like she's going to, ruin Charlie's life like she's making a decision that will destroy her parents lives she's going to they're going to lose a child she's going to just disappear and they'll never see her again yeah she's uh it's so selfish she's just like Edward is the only thing that matters which first of all is so realistic (laughs) like I definitely remember thinking like your sort of teen boyfriend was like the sun and moon and stars. But like still her decision to become a vampire means just like blowing up the lives of almost everyone she cares about. She arrives at it so quickly. And she's just like, yeah, let's do this. Let's kill me. Basically. She's impulsive. She's definitely impulsive. Uh, Here's a weird thing. What mental age is Edward at? Oh my god, because he's a hundred. Like Bella is making like seventeen year old decisions, and is was Edward like kind of stuck mentally at seventeen in a way? I think they're all that's, stuck mentally at the age that they were transformed. That's what because it seems like. Think about Carlisle. Like Carlisle is not like losing his faculties at all. Like they don't seem to be aging in their brains. Right? Because I yeah, it's it's very much like. Edward, who's like could be her great grandfather, is never like, why am I fucking with all this teen drama? I've like read every book ever because I never sleep. Yeah, but no, I think he's stuck at eighteen. <laughs> like, or he's seventeen, isn't he's he? Seventeen. Yeah, yeah. So he's stuck as a seventeen-year-old forever, which sucks. Like, 
a great thing about being a teenager is like you get to do it and then not do it anymore. Right. Like my favorite thing about being a teen is like having it in the rearview mirror. <laughs> and it's really important to have those conversations. I mean, it's really important to like have those emotions, like experience those highs and lows, be a teenager. But like, I don't want to do that shit forever. I'm really enjoying being almost 30. Like, yeah. I feel like a much more, like, substantial, insane human having, like, gotten being a teenager long out of my system. Oh, anyway. So, anyway, after the slow burn of this book, the last third is, like, pretty well-paced and exciting. The chase with James, I think, it becomes a page-turner. Yeah, James is a really good villain. His obsession with her is kind of a nice inversion of edward's obsession yeah i think that was well done i do too i think again people are pretty mean about this book often but i think that was like a really creative and intelligent plot choice putting the final showdown in the ballet studio which we know at this point would have just horrified bella to have to go to every week is a pretty cheeky move too yeah. I think i think that's a funny touch hilarious and the the that very last encounter when Edward has to suck the poison out of Bella sort of like gives us this really satisfying finish because Edward sort of gets to do the thing that he wants to do more badly than possess Bella, which is to kill her. Right. Like, so it is actually a really dramatic, exciting kind of like shattering moment when Edward has to like drink her blood and then figure out how to stop. Yeah, it's pretty sexy. It's like gross and scary and sexy in a really good way. Like it's a very appealing choice. Yeah. I do think like you said this earlier, but when Stephanie Meyer is writing actual sort of vampire action, like I find this in the later books too, they get pretty exciting yeah i think so she's way better when it gets weird yeah like i never want to read like a john green style novel by her like a kind of (laughs) psychologically realistic like just like regular teens experiencing life type of story yeah she uses the vampire mythos she's built like really in a really nice allegorical way to all these like just high teen emotions though yeah And the impasse that Bella and Edward come to is a really interesting conflict to kind of propel us through the next parts of the series because it's this interesting kind of like usually the kind of star-crossed lovers narrative has to do with other people wanting different things for them than they want for themselves. So again, it's kind of a nice inversion that the thing that they each wants most desperately is at like direct odds. Even though they have this like all consuming, like everlasting love or whatever. So this book is actually good then. Uh, I think the story's pretty good. I think the, yeah, I think the plot's pretty good. I wouldn't call the book literarily particularly successful (laughs) but here's the thing we can kind of transition to because we watched the movie version Mm -hmm. and date night both of us really liked it 
Yeah, I thought... Because the plot is great. I, I thought it was... a. I also thought it was true to what Meyer was trying to do in the book. I yeah. found it to be a pretty successful adaptation. And Kristen Stewart captures Bella's flat affect really yeah, well. People <laughs> made so much fun of Kristen Stewart in this movie, but like she plays Bella really faithfully. Yeah, I think so. And uh, they both do a lot with those uh, gazes. You, you know, Robert Pattinson is uh, quite good. It's a, it's a pretty sexy movie for a movie with no sex in it. They, they do a good job with the longing gazes. Um, it's really moody. It's sort of interestingly shot. Yeah, they used handheld cameras to um, kind of give it a little more realism. It was directed by a woman, Catherine Hardwick, mm-hmm. which the later movies weren't. And honestly, like, I think you can tell the difference. She does the actual romance aspect so much better than any of the male directors that did the later ones. And maybe that's like a really gendered assumption about like what women do well versus what men do well in film. Because... Catherine Hardwick also does pretty exciting action scenes, especially at the end. But I do think she like, she sort of lingers and holds on to the like moments of sort of tangible sexual tension in a way that doesn't happen in the other movies. And I find it, yeah, I find it really satisfying. I think a lot of you are going to think we are crazy and maybe it's you know what maybe it's because for like a month we got like totally immersed in this thing to prepare for this weird episode and we got kind of like I mean you know the way we have with Harry Potter like we got kind of obsessed just because we like to dive into whatever we're reading but after the experience of reading the book I was like oh this movie's great it's not great I thought it was good. I enjoyed it immensely. I was surprised how much I liked it, but I'm really glad that I ended up enjoying this book because, like I said, in the first third, I wasn't so sure, but it would be a really boring take to just have like a podcast making fun of Twilight instead of like finding what is like interesting and successful in it and what appeals to people. So I'm glad we didn't have to have... I'm glad I didn't, like, hate it. That's also, like, kind of not our aesthetic. No. Like, so, I I mean, there's a fuck ton to quibble with in these books. Like, you guys know that. (laughs) Anyone who's read them or anyone who has any sort of dim cultural understanding of them understands, like, there's a lot that's, like, pretty inherently nonsense about these books. And or problematic. Super problematic. The scene where... Jacob is telling on the beach where Jacob is like telling her about like the legends of like the cold ones. Oh yeah, we barely talked about Jacob. Well, Jacob doesn't become that important until the second book. And there's some like fucked up stuff with the like cultural appropriation with like the Native Americans. Yeah. (laughs) That's a real, it's a real tribe she's talking about. And she just like makes up like a crazy, instead of inventing a fictional Native American tribe, which would have been problematic in its own way, too, because of the, like, attributing, like, earth magic or whatever to, like, the noble Quileute people. Uh, yeah, so we should have talked about this earlier, but whatever. We'll, we'll, we got here. Um, yeah, the single most fucked up thing. And I guess the reason we didn't talk about it that much this time is because it gets much more important later on. Like, we don't even learn in this book that they're werewolves. Right. Like... He sort of implies that they're like wolf people. 
But like we don't learn that they literally turn into wolves until the next book. But yeah, she fucking goes to Forks, Washington. Which is a real place. That there is an actual <laughs> indigenous reservation on the outskirts of Forks. And there are actual people living there, the Quileute people. They are a real Native American tribe with, with, a, his- with the a history that that implies, yeah. including a history of genocide and colonialism and their own myths and legends and yeah their own experiences as indigenous people and she was like you guys are wolves (laughs) which is like really 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 fucked up and not okay so some of the facts about the quileute meyer uses like are real like yeah the quileute belief system says that their people are descended from a wolf like a single wolf uh, so that, that like tracks, but it's weird that then she took this, uh, like pretty small Native American nation and decided that they were all werewolves. I, I don't know. It's like, what yeah, do we think about that? I just think it's like, okay, considering the fact that like most of Quileute beliefs, traditions, spirituality, language indeed um was destroyed I and mean, this is not just making an assumption about native american folks in general like this is true of the quileutes was destroyed by colonization and genocide there are only about 2000 of them left um like living today and it's just really appropriative and indeed sort of like it's cultural theft to sort of have it seems like maybe like read the Wikipedia entry on the Quileutes or like maybe read one book and like designated these actual human beings as werewolves, which are monsters, essentially, which are like mythical, like evildoers. And in Twilight, like it's more complicated than that. Like the werewolves is like specifically evolved to combat the quote-unquote cold ones the vampires so it's a more complicated werewolf mythology than um kind of is like standard like in harry potter um but yeah i don't think it's super okay to have taken a real peoples who have this real experience of literally having their culture and traditions and very lives stolen from them by white colonizers and then to have this lady just like go down there look around and be like sweet werewolves like I and you know what I'm not an indigenous person so I don't necessarily like obviously I don't know from experience what that feels like but to me it comes across as pretty appropriate and fucked up and I don't know if she's writing about them like with their permission I don't know a ton about like the communication Stephanie Meyer had with Quileute tribe members before she wrote this book. I don't imagine she did a great job. Um, But you know what? Maybe we're wrong. And if you happen to know a lot about this, like send us an email for sure. It's not nibblerpodcast at gmail.com. It is in fact quibblerpodcast at gmail.com. But I don't love that choice. What was your favorite part of Twilight? Okay, a couple scenes I really like. When they're in the meadow kind of doing 
the chapter's called Confessions. And it's actually the first chapter she wrote, we found out. And she sort of based the whole book around this, like, central moment. Mm -hmm. Which is where he's sort of, like, revealing his experience of, like, meeting her for the first time and, like, thirsting more profoundly for his for her blood than he has ever experienced and like wanting to kill her and then how he got over that and he sort of tells her all about like what a vampire is like all about and um then they kiss and it's like really electric I thought that was a great scene like a truly interesting compelling scene yeah I, I really I agree and then I really liked the like James stuff like when he's videotaping it, he's making like a snuff film of her. Like it's upsetting in a in a true way. Yeah, that was a nice horror moment. Yeah, I honestly like. I think Stephanie Meyer should write horror the same way that like J.K. Rowling is a successful detective writer because like a lot of the best things in Harry Potter are very like who done it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Stephanie Meyer would great would write pretty good horror. Yeah, I, I think so too. What was your favorite part? Uh, okay, I have a fake favorite part and a serious favorite part. Okay. Uh, I actually do think, all right, I can't just like steal your favorite part, but I do think it makes sense that the meadow scene is what she built the whole book around. And I especially love that part where he's like explaining to her like just why he's so dangerous. I think that part, I said it before, is really compelling. Yeah, I think my real favorite scene is the same as yours. My LOL, what is this favorite scene is when she's just Googling vampires. With another sigh, I turned to my computer. Naturally, the screen was covered in pop-up ads. I sat in my hard folding chair and began closing all the little windows. Eventually, I made it to my favorite search engine. I shot down a few more pop-ups and then typed in one word, vampire. It took an infuriatingly long time, of course. When the results came up, there was a lot to sift through. Everything from movies and TV shows to role-playing games, underground metal, and gothic cosmetic companies. Then I found a promising site, Vampires A to Z. I waited impatiently for it to load, quickly clicking closed each ad that flashed across the screen. Finally, the screen was finished. Simple white background with black text, academic looking. Two quotes greeted me on the homepage. Throughout the vast shadowy world of ghosts and demons, there is no figure so terrible, no figure so dreaded and abhorred, yet dight with such fearful fascination as the vampire, who is himself neither ghost nor demon, but yet who partakes the dark natures and possesses the mysterious and terrible qualities of both. Reverend Montague Summers. Well, we don't actually know if it's Google because she just describes it as her favorite search engine. She might be Alta Vistaing. Or like Bing. Who the fuck knows? Do you remember that Parks and Recreation episode <laughs> where like Ben Wyatt figures out that everyone in Pawnee, um, which has another very complicated, fairly fucked up relationship with an actual Native American tribe. Anyway, Ben Wyatt figures out that everyone in Pawnee uses Alta Vista. <laughs> Sorry, that's just like... Every time I hear Alta Vista or say it, I think of that Parks and Rec episode. <laughs> well, yeah, she's just like, she doesn't even Google like vampire legends or like, she just starts with the straight up search for vampire and then just starts going through the links. She's not very good at researching. 
No. Um, <laughs> in the movie, she does a way more logical yeah, thing, which is she, like she Googles like Cold Ones Quileute Legend, finds a book at like a Quileute owned bookstore in Port Angeles, goes and buys the book and therefore like learns this whole right. fake mythology. So like, let's just, I'm just going to Google vampire right now. So I'm Googling vampire. Okay, we get the Wikipedia Vampires, the real history, live science, the bloody... Like, this is not a good way to start. Oh, the National Geographic story might be a good way to start. That's true. Okay, so... Vampires, is it real? National (laughs) Geographic YouTube. (laughs) What? Is it real must be the name of a series. Yeah, vampires. Vampires, is it it real? real? I would have... I don't know. I I find that scene, like, so hilarious. Yeah. For whatever reason. She's like Googling vampires. I'm trying to think what my favorite hilarious scene is. And Um, she she reads through all of them and then she's like, yep, vampires. I think my favorite scene is just like her first day of school when it just describes in minute detail like which building every class is in, like where she sits in every classroom. It's just like (laughs) nobody needs any of this detail. Like we should have gotten through her first like six weeks of school in like Two pages. Yeah. Like pre-Edward stuff, like just get over it. No, we don't need this. Um, it needs an editor. So does this episode. Uh, okay, who's your unsung hero? We kind of went over this already, but I like Charlie. He's just like Pacific Northwest dad. Likes the Mariners, hangs out with Billy Black. Eats puts- fish fry. Yeah. And uh, also Mike Newton, who gets a who gets a bum rap Edward calls him vile, even though he, like, totally covers for Bella in, like, P.E. class. And when she tells him that she doesn't want to go to the dance with him, she he goes and asks Jessica instead. He doesn't, like, watch her sleep every night. Uh, and he just, he just wants, like, things to be fun. He wants to organize snowball fights and beach trips. Totally agreed on the Mike Newton front. He's just, like... <laughs> he's, he's fine. He's a sweet guy. He's not a good... Fit for Bella. But he's perfectly nice. And he like drops it. Yeah. (laughs) So my unsung heroes are Jasper, who's a member of the vampire um, family. And he's Alice's mate. Um, I think he has a really interesting sort of like superpower. It's really subtle. But he can control the emotions of those around him. So yeah, he's like this deep empath and um he can sort of like he has all these moments where he kind of calms Bella down when she's panicking and he can just sort of put this like air of like well-being into a room um I think he's really interesting he's the newest vegetarian vampire so he is controlling like more extreme urges than the rest of them and he's pretty successful and he's an interesting one that we don't get to see a ton of in this book although he's um obviously more important later on. My other unsung hero is Billy Black, Jacob's father, who is one of the Quileute elders, um, which first of all is confusing because he has like a 14-year-old son. So how old could he possibly be? I don't know. Like he's probably what, in his 40s maybe? Elder seems like extreme. But he is, like he cares about Bella. He like doesn't want Charlie to like have his daughter murdered by vampires. Which is like... Legit. A reasonable thing to think. Yeah. Um, he seems like a really good dad. He just like is this, he's a good dude. And later on, he sort of allows the tribe to like participate in a lot of 
supernatural shit that is really interesting. Anyway, Billy Black, good guy. This week's episode is brought to you by Volvo for life. <laughs> and after. For, and after. For eternal life. That's actually Volvo's slogan. Volvo for Volvo for life. Really? Maybe, yeah, maybe that's why they picked Volvos. Actually, we probably can't say this episode is brought to you by Volvo since Volvo's not paying us anything. So, uh, Volvo, you're welcome for the free advertising. I used to have a Volvo. <laughs> I was don't it a anymore. silver one? No, it was like pearlescent white. It was actually a really good car. Um, that's why vampires drive Volvos. <laughs> fair enough. The audiobook clips that you heard are courtesy, once again, of Penguin Random House Audio. They are from Ileana Kadushin's performance of Twilight by Stephanie Meyer. We are normally a Harry Potter podcast. This was an April Fool's episode that ended up being real as shit. So <laughs> we are actually curious if this was at all fun for you. Um, we are willing to consider doing the other Twilight books. Are we? Yeah. All right. Like, probably pretty spaced out because they are really long and we have to also read Harry Potter and do our jobs. And I have to read 40 other books this year because that was my New Year's resolution. But send us emails, quibblerpodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us or, you know, whatever. Send us messages if this was at all fun. If you hated this, I'm really sorry. Um, You can skip it. They're probably not listening anymore. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, um, thanks for listening. Ciao. Amigos. That's when I noticed the still white figure. Edward Cullen was leaning against the front door of the Volvo, three cars down from me, and staring intently in my direction. I swiftly looked away and threw the truck into reverse, almost hitting a rusty Toyota Corolla in my haste. I looked in my rearview mirror. A line was beginning to form. Directly behind me, Tyler Crowley was in his recently acquired used Sentra waving. What kind of car is that? I asked. An M3. I don't speak car and driver. It's a BMW, he rolled his eyes, not looking at me. I nodded. I'd heard of that one, 